As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Certain things you feel, like data, the hair that stood up on my arm Seeing Lady Gaga was my data. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's like that feeling I got, the butterflies, seeing Eve on stage, that's data. Like, so I think from a pure create art creation perspective, until I can find software that, that's going to write Imagine from John Lennon or Ribbon in the Sky from Stevie Wonder, it's going to be hard for me to believe that we're going to find algorithms to write those records. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. We have a special one for you. This week on the program, we have Troy Carter, who is a former rapper, briefly, club promoter. He was Lady Gaga's first manager, managed her ascent from obscurity to superstardom. He is the former head of creative services at Spotify. He is also currently the manager of Prince's music estate, and he is also a tech investor. So yes, he wears many, many hats. Uh, And we sat down recently to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, including the present and future of the music business, which given Spotify's antitrust suit against Apple this very week, I thought would be particularly timely. As you might have guessed, as a music industry bigwig, Carter does not live in the valley. He's in LA. So off to La La Land I went, and Carter lives up in the hills off a long winding road where the estates, because that's what they are, are very far apart and set back from behind the road behind very big imposing front gates. And his house didn't even have a number, but I was told that when we got close we would recognize it because, true story, we would see the big white pillars topped with a pair of gold lions. Yeah, there you go. You have a good one. You too, thank you, sir. Thanks. Hi, I have a meeting with Troy. Uh, okay, one second. Okay. I open the gate now. Okay. This is all pretty pretty new down here, so it's kind of kind of exciting. And have you guys met before? We've not. You've not. All right, how you doing? How's it going? Great. Good, good. Thanks for coming over. Yeah, pleasure. This is cool. Thank you. I was doing some research on the way over here. I was actually in the car, and the the driver, the Lyft driver, had the radio on, uh-huh. and I was like. I haven't listened oh, to like the radio, radio, the radio, radio. terrestrial radio. Yeah. Yes. And I was like, wow, this is so weird. I was just had a moment because I was like, I can't remember the last time I actually turned the radio on. And I was reading about the early days of Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. And for you, how important it was to kind of get on a top 40 radio station, how that was like a key to like launch her. Yes. The whole world has changed. It's funny, as much as, it, it, as it's changed... Radio is still as important. Well, so I was going to ask, is it? <laughs> Very important, because especially all I in America. Is to po- podcasts and, and Spotify, which we'll get to. Yeah, in, in America, it's still very important, you know, and as you look at sort of developing superstars and household names, radio is still such a mainstream medium in the United States. The way we kind of look at it from a strategy perspective is, you know, streaming kind of builds a story for radio. And then radio kind of opens it up even more. So I think, you know, we'll get to a point where 
streaming's widely adopted enough where you can break, you know, sort of global superstars off of streaming alone. But as of now, you still need radio. So, so actually, streaming still kind of serves radio as a kind of a conduit to radio. It's a means to it's a means to an end. Really? Yeah, which was frustrating for me at Spotify because one of the things and one of the goals while I was there was to, you know, how do we make this the almost the end all be all? So when you break within streaming services, yeah. you sort of have global domination. But uh, I think we're still a few years out from that point. So still, if you're just called a streaming star, it's hard to kind of truly break out and kind of arrive. Yeah, because I, I think you need multiple systems. You still need publicity, whether it's doing um, talk shows, whether right. it's magazine reviews, interviews. You know, you need all of these different components to really for it all to come together. As of right now, there's not one particular audio streaming service that you can break on and be on that service alone and become a global superstar. Because between Spotify and Apple Music, what, there's 100 million plus? A lot more than that. So just on paid subscribers, Spotify is probably close to 100 million just on paid. So, you know, between the two, you, you know, you're talking over a couple hundred million users. And is it because, what do you call it, the middle of the country, the middle, you know, the there's a whole group of people who basically just don't stream. Yeah, and, and you don't have the, the aggregated listening that, that radio may have, right? So with, with radio, you have this thing of uh, repetition. It's called Top 40, but it's yeah. probably 18 songs that's played a million times a week. And when you look at that sort of building a behavior, that's how you break songs. Some artists, you're going to hear two or three of their songs, you know, with, with, within that time frame. So I think that part of it, you know, that's, that's one of the things that the music industry got right in the very beginning was, since we're going to make these investments, do we have platforms that we can actually leverage to break these artists on? So if we choose five or six people who are going to be the Whitney Houston's, the Michael Jackson's, the Madonna's, Ariana Grande's, can we go to an MTV? Can we go to an Oprah Winfrey? Can we go to a Clear Channel and basically use these platforms to, to be able to break artists? And now it's so much noise out there. You know, you have millions of different yeah. playlists. Radio is still a good way. It's probably the last platform that you sort of have that's controlled that where you can really break artists. So you talked about playlists because that's the other thing. Is like, so my wife still wants to own her music. I haven't bought an album in I don't know how long, but it does feel like that whole concept of the, of the album itself is dying. The songs you listen to are in a playlist or just, you know, suggested by an algorithm as opposed to, I'm going to go out and buy whatever, The Low End Theory, Tribe Called Quest, and you listen to it beginning to end, and it's all kind of perfectly composed in a certain type of way. That feels less important now. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I just had this uh, debate with a few of my friends, younger friends in their 20s, and they basically told me the album format is dead. And my response was because a lot of people just don't know how to make good albums anymore. So if an artist makes 15 great songs, people aren't going to say, oh, I only want to listen to one, you know, yeah. because because these things called playlists are here. That is not how it works. If you make 15 great songs, people are going to listen to 15 great songs. Drake's a really good example the Scorpion album got streamed, you know, millions of times, you know. The whole album. Yeah, the whole, the whole album. Right. He made a great album. When you look at the amount of work that people put into a project and the creativity behind the project, I think people will show up and listen if the body of work is there. So why are people less good at this seemingly fundamental part of the music industry? It's a bit of a lost art. In terms of making a great album from start to finish, I think this is a frequency of release that, you know, a lot of artists are putting out music a lot quicker now. In my opinion, it'll go back to to the lost art of people putting together a real body of work. And then you have some artists who are able to string it together. So where they may not look at it as an album format, where they say, okay, we're going to do 15 songs at one time. They may say we might do five 
releases of three songs and you know and yeah. all of those songs are, are, are great and it's kind of you know they and they string it together look at adele for instance adele makes incredible incredible albums you know she yeah. she is it's proven and you got producers like you know a, a rick rubin you look who knows how to make incredible albums you listen to jay's 444 it's an incredible album from start to finish it's artists who are willing to sort of invest the time into putting together the format, and I think the fans will show up. Right. When did you arrive at Spotify? Well, I originally arrived as an investor in 2011 and served as a, a, a not a, I wouldn't say consultant, but a little bit of a consigliere for some of the U.S. strategy as the company was coming to the U.S. Right. And built a great relationship with the company and with Daniel and then officially went in... It would have been 2016, and I was there until June of 2018. And what was the problem you were solving? Obviously, there's a lot of heat and noise around um, Taylor Swift saying, all right, I'm not, I'm not getting paid enough. I'm out. I mean, I know that Spotify isn't necessarily Silicon Valley, but tech and music. Was that what you were trying to bridge, is basically create that trust? I mean, what can you just describe what you found and how you... Yeah, I was I was kind of looking at solving the problem of this disconnect between creators and technology and specifically around music and where I think there was a lot of misunderstandings in terms of on the artist side internally at Spotify and then externally how uh, Spotify was perceived in the community and how streaming overall was perceived in the community. And my job was to really build translation tools to be able to talk between the two. Right. And So uh, one word, how was Spotify perceived? Uh, you know, I think it was perceived in different ways depending on the constituency. So, you know, so for songwriters, they perceived it a certain way. For record labels, they perceived it a certain way. It's very generalized, you know, and I'm speaking in general terms because as you went, you know, deeper down each vertical, everybody sort of had their own opinion experience with the platform. But generally speaking, there was this perception that streaming music didn't pay well, which I knew wasn't true. I just knew that the artists and the creators weren't capturing the value because of the way certain deals were set up. And then also I knew in the beginning that you needed scale. You needed to yeah. get to a certain scale. I was talking to one manager when I came into Spotify. His name's Sal. He manages The weekend. And my first couple of weeks in, I went to talk to the managers at Live Nation about streaming and just, you know, just showing them some, pro- some projections of what their clients can make and what was paid out already. And when they saw some of the numbers, you know, their eyes bulged. One of the things that Sal said he said the fact that people used to pay for a CD and it was that one-time transaction versus you know being able to get paid perpetually right. every time somebody streams that album, he said that's a game changer. Sal became an evangelist for the platform because we had done so much for the weekend with that album that he had released, I Can't Feel My Face. Yeah. Last week, I looked at the year-end charts and The Weeknd had two albums, 2018, that over a half a million units overall in, the con- in consumption. And he didn't release an album last year. So the fact that, you know, it's this... So how, sorry, half a million giving. units, what does that mean? So the way it, it's calculated for a certain amount of streams will count as an album sell, essentially. Gotcha. So the fact that the equivalent of one million albums sold just off of streaming on a year that you didn't put out an album right. shows... That, you know, this sort of perpetual listening cycle that that you can make revenue off of. And I think once that was explained to the community, you could do extremely well. You just got to negotiate better deals with the record companies now that they don't have to pay for manufacturing, distribution, warehousing, shipping, breakage, all of these things that they still build you for that they no longer pay for or whatever. Uh, You just got to negotiate better deals now. So that was leads to one of my other questions, and I don't know if this is true, you can tell me, but it does feel like music industry in particular, artists have a history of getting screwed or trusting the wrong people or making really bad deals, like, you know, big acts going bankrupt. What is it about the music industry that kind of the setup that makes that 
seem to happen over and over and over again. I don't think it's specific to the music industry. So if you look at the fine art space, you look at sports, you look at, you know, all of these things where people who may who may not have experience in negotiating deals, managing money, becoming wealthy overnight. Because I've been in situations with artists who have been smarter than me who when it comes to negotiating deals. Like John Legend is one of the smartest artists I've ever met in my career, who was a, a BCG consultant. Was he? Yeah, he worked at BCG as he was starting his music career. Oh, really? I didn't yes, know that. Yes, and John, John's just one of the smartest guys who, I, who, who I've ever met. Gaga's the same way, by the way. And they have great people around them who help them manage their businesses. And then you have some people who, you know, first thing they do is go to a car dealership, you invest in this bad investment or whatever. So I think people always sort of through the history of time have taken advantage of people that they know they can take advantage of. Right. But I, I think this next generation of artists, though, specifically ones who I've come across, they seem a lot less desperate and a lot smarter than some of the previous generations. And I think because they have more options, because if you only had a handful of options and the record labels were only choosing select people, there's a level of desperation on the artist side, but there's a little, and there's a lot of leverage on the label side that allowed them to take advantage of of those artists. Now that there's so many different options, these new artists are a lot less pressed to go into a lot of the bad deals that we would see in the past. Why? Because they have YouTube and yeah, Twitter you can, and yes, you can go, Instagram, whatever. You can go to a distribution company, pay a low distribution fee. You can upload your stuff to YouTube. They're finding different ways to monetize now. You're selling merch directly to fans now. And you're finding fame a lot quicker. Just lastly, on the economics of streaming. So is it how appreciably different is it from the old model? In other words, is it a better deal ultimately for like it does it, it make depends, it, it depends does it make the, it harder to kind of quote unquote make it or no? It depends on the deal that you negotiate, right? You know, because no, no matter what, is it depends on what your deal is, whether you're dealing directly with the platforms or the record labels. So if you negotiate a good deal and you have hits, then the yield is going to be exponentially different than if you negotiated a bad deal. And over the holiday, I was looking at all of the year-end data that, that had come in. I looked at Drake's data for 2018, and I had to run the numbers a few times. I think the number, like gross numbers, was over $100 million in revenue on Drake product what, <laughs> off of streaming. M- just streaming. Streaming. So 100 million to him or total? I don't know his deal. So like, you know, right. or how it's negotiated on the back end. This this is just gross revenue. Right. If you look at Post Malone and you look at Ariana Grande and you look at all of these acts who have huge streaming numbers, the math doesn't lie. So whatever the deals are on the back end, you know, are deals that the artists have have negotiated, but it just shows the amount of revenue that's paid out on streaming now is real money. And especially when you look at hip hop, I think it was 92% of consumption sales, however you want to categorize it, in 2018 was non-physical. So in other words, it was a digital file. So whether it was a so nine out, of ten, nine out of ten, whatever listens or b- transactions yeah, exactly. or whatever. It was all digital. In other words, not physical. So you didn't have to, ma- it, there were no cost of manufacturing right. at that point. So when you look at the margins, it's a real business. And so say five, ten years ago, that would have been what, 10%? Or zero yeah, percent. Yeah, it would, it would have been yeah in a single 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 yeah. digits. You know. Wow, that's really accelerated. When over the last three, the, four the years? last four or five years, you know, we we've seen a shift. You know, it just was a stat. Echo hit like I think over a hundred million Alexa units sold or something. Yeah. like uh, Echo units sold or something along those lines. So when you think about the use case for music in a home, where that may not have been the case before. So all of a sudden you have these devices in your home where, you know, you, you're going to listen to more music. Yeah, because we have Sonos in my house and it's just, 
speaking in kind of Silicon Valley speak, there's less friction. Yes. With playing music. Yes. Because all you have to do is just tap something on your phone, and all of a sudden you're listening to something while you're cooking or whatever. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So when you can sort of give a voice command, or within you know one or two selections, you're listening to what you want, or listening to what you didn't even know you wanted to listen to because of recommendations. There's a bigger use case for music, and I think that that the market is going to grow exponentially. When we look at markets that we were never able to monetize in the music industry before, where China was a huge piracy market where we never made Mm -hmm. money from. You look at Africa, which was a huge piracy market where we never made money from. All of a sudden, you know, those markets move into subscription. Why would they though? Because it's actually easier to have a subscription service than pirate. Than to go and buy some dodgy CD or whatever down at the flea market. Yeah, because right. when you you know when you have that was one of the things that was that Spotify had done really well was to prove out the the case that music subscription advertising base could eradicate piracy because it's a better experience. Right. So you don't have to worry about corrupt files. You don't have to worry about you know viruses on your computer. You don't have to worry about getting the wrong song. You don't have to worry about the time it would take you to, you know, for downloads, all of the things that was hard about piracy, we made it very, very easy to be able to do it for free. Right. And ad support it. So we were able to sort of monetize it and then being being able to give people an even better experience if you were willing to pay for it. We're starting to see that in places like China where you're seeing real subscription businesses, you're seeing real revenue. Also, they're teaching us new models. You know, you look at some of the things that Tencent Music is doing in terms of, you know, artists being able to perform in their living rooms and they're getting tips and, you know, all of these things. Oh, like Twitch style. Yeah, exactly. Right. But in, so in music, we've never been able to do that at scale in, in, in yeah. the West. And all of a sudden you have musicians in China that have whole, entirely different revenue streams and different models than Western musicians. And we're going to see that sort of move into this model. Oh, Um, in the West as well. So I'm bullish about just seeing what happens globally and how it grows. Pulling back from globally, can we go back to West Philadelphia? West Philly. (laughs) That was my globe. (laughs) So could you just give, for those who don't know, you you have an amazing backstory. Can you just give a quick kind of, yeah, start from the beginning? I grew up in Philly, just a lover of hip hop music. You know, since I was a little kid, I just fell in love with the music, sort of old school hip hop, when like as it was first coming yeah. onto the scene. I was electrif- electrified by like from from the moment it hit. I had this dream that I was going to become, you know, the biggest rapper in the world, <laughs> or at least the biggest rapper yep. in West Philly. And I uh, joined a rap group in ninth grade. Too too many. Too too many. Yes. So, <laughs> in my research, I actually saw your. Where's the party? Yes. The video. I have a question about that. Uh-huh. So when you at the beginning of the video, you guys like walk into this building and one of the other guys in the group is holding like a, looks like a teddy bear with sunglasses. Yeah. What was that? The backstory is it, it used to be like stashes. Stashes for what? Anything. So you could stash money, you could stash whatever. <laughs> so they, 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 a firearm, perhaps? <laughs> they were like stashes. It, was no, it, was, it wasn't a firearm in that yeah. one, by the way. Yeah. But that's what, that was like the sort of origin from those. So people would actually show up to parties with teddy bears? Not part like any anywhere. It was like it could be in a, in a house. It could be wherever. Ah, okay. Yes, 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 yes. Because <laughs> yes. I saw that and I was like, what? the hell is that yeah it was crazy yeah it was yeah it was crazy <laughs> so we did some weird stuff back then and you have siblings or how did what was your kind of growing up in west philly like what was uh, west philly yeah i have uh, i have two siblings and a half brother we grew up very modestly you know like we were very wealthy and love and family and you know we come from a really really big family you know, financially was tough growing up and we grew up, you know, as exciting as the music was in our neighborhood. It was equally tough in terms of, you know, it was the height of the crack epidemic in our neighborhood. A lot of young people started dying just because of, you know, sort of turf wars. And my mom was a single mom, raised us, you know, a little apartment in West Philly. You know, she got up 
faithfully went to work every single day just to provide for me and my brothers. So I kind of got my work ethic from from watching my mom sort of tough it out and sort of got my resilience from we didn't have plan B's, you know, so yeah. it was you, you got to figure it out. It wasn't, a, a, you know, a lot of options. So once you knew that was the goal, you know, you had to get to the finish line on it. So you start too, too many. Yes. Which, on the way to global stardom. On the way to glo- global stardom. We're going to take over the world. Uh, we had this thing. Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince was the biggest act to ever come out of West Philly. If we ever met Will Smith, he was going to give us a record deal and change our lives. And we went. That was the plan. That's the plan. So every day for about six months, we went to Jeff's studio, Jazzy Jeff's, waited outside the studio until finally somebody let us in. We would sit outside, like in the cold, looking like stars. Yeah, because I, I don't. I've not actually never been to Philly, sadly, but I know the weather's not always nice. Oh no, it's like you, you're you're doing this in the shittiest of weather. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> you're figuring out how you're gonna get, you know, twenty miles down, you know, downtown. So you're hopping on the trains, and finally we met Will, and we popped. So you it. finally made it into we, the door. We, we made it into the door. He put in our cassette tape that we had. We did a little demo tape and auditioned for him on the spot. And what you just put in the music and then you guys rapped in front of him. We or? rapped in front of him live, and you know we put put this tape in. We danced and like had these dance routines and everything else or whatever. And I think Will fell in love with us because you know we were we were we were funny and like you know we told him we had been waiting out the studio for that long or whatever. Right. You know, and I think he saw the hustle in us. And, and he was a bit older than you at that point? Yeah, Will Will is about, I think Will's about six years older than me or so. Right. Will and Jeff, nothing was bigger than those guys. You know, you think about parents just don't understand and like, you know, some of the Fresh big Prince. pop records. And this is as he was going into Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, that was just starting. Yeah, that was just, just, okay. just getting started. And he asked us how we were getting home. We said we had no idea. And he gave us a ride home that night. Knocked on our parents' door, you know, and they eyes kind of balls open because Fresh Prince like the is fresh at the prince. door. <laughs> and, he, you know, he basically told our parents, you know, don't worry about them. I, I got them. Although our rap careers was failures and it was like, you know, just very disappointing. He took me under his wing. His manager, James Lasseter, is still one of my closest friends and sort of changed my life. Too Too Many doesn't work. So what was so what did you do? That was my first real failure in my, in my life. I worked really, really hard on it. It was the first thing I felt really passionate about and I fell in love with. And I quit school and like I did all of these things and sort of dedicated my... Because my, this was high school. You dropped out of high school. Yeah, I dropped out yeah. In, in 11th grade. I just knew in my mind this was it for me. Even that first thing, you know, that sort of thought, thoughts become things. We said we were going to meet Will Smith. We met Will Smith. Is on now. <laughs> that was my first real failure. And I remember being at my grandmother's house, like, just broken, you know, when I found out, you know, that the record deal wasn't going to work out and that, you know, this thing was over. I didn't know what I, I, what, what I was going to do from there. Because you had no plan B, basically. No, like zero plan B. So what happened? I ended up asking Will's manager if I could intern for him. And he gave me a job as his, as his assistant. And he still says to this day, he, uh, he said I was the worst assistant in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> because I couldn't keep focused. It's like I wanted to do a million things. And it's like I didn't listen to him half the time or whatever. But he gave me the opportunity to really learn the business from him. And that was my first time learning the business. From there, I was promoting some concerts in Philly, built some relationships there. I ended up meeting P. Diddy through some concerts I promoted. He gave me a job working at Bad Boy Entertainment. What year was that? I think it was like 94 or so. So that was when, I'm just trying to think back to what Bad Boy was then. That was Biggie who was just getting started. So that was before Ready to Die album. Oh, that was before that. Wow. Yep, that was before Ready to so Die. So you were there when that kind yep. of crazy. So, uh, it was Craig Mack and Biggie had just released sort of the first singles, Flavor in Your Ear from Craig Mack. Yeah, had just come great out. song. Yeah. So that was my time at Bad Boy, starting off around then. You also promoted a show with Wu-Tang? 
Yeah, Wu-Tang was one of my first concerts that I had done in Philly. And actually, it was their first time coming to Philadelphia. I think it was, a, I paid them 2500 bucks and then a 16-passenger minivan. Wait, you drove the entire Wu-Tang Clan down? And no, it... they had to drive themselves. I had to pay for the 16-passenger <laughs> minivan from Staten Island. And they showed up on time. And they showed up on time. It was a fantastic show. Old Dirty Bastard had a broken leg, and, you know, so he was rapping in the corner. You know, he couldn't get From up, so he was, like, sitting on a speaker rapping in the corner or whatever. But, you know, it was the first time they had performed in Philly. So, like, it was years of, like, you know, kind of looking back, you know, bringing Jay-Z and Foxy Brown into Philadelphia for their first shows, bringing Notorious B.I.G. into Philly for his first shows. It was just a really rich time. And So how do you do history. that, though? Because you're basically an intern. So what I was doing, I would scrape together money from guys in my neighborhood, and I would rent, like, the YMCA, or I would rent, like, a local um, you're hall. Crowd, you're crowdfunding. Yeah, exactly. This is the original <laughs> crowdfunding. But from guys, you really got to pay back. You can't send them a T-shirt and some stickers. These guys wanted their money back. <laughs> And they wanted a picture with, with, with the Wu-Tang Clan. But, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so original crowdfunding. So I would intern at Bad Boy three days a week, commuting from Philly to New York on Peter Pan Trailways. And then I would promote these shows, usually on a Friday or a Saturday. And that's how I started building. And when you were at Bad Boy, that, was, that must have been right, right when things with Tupac and Notorious got really bad. Yeah, I remember I was at Bad Boy when Tupac got shot in New York, not when he got killed in Vegas. Yeah. And I never forget the death threats that, you know, would come through on the telephone. You know, so we had security. Because you were, you were the intern. Yes, yeah, so I would have to answer the phone. So I would do reception work. Bad Boy Entertainment, may I help you? Yeah, we're going to kill all of y'all, you know. <laughs> Tell Puffy we're going to kill that. You know, so you would, we would get death threats. It wasn't a fun time, put it that way, you know, just what was happening, living through like the sort of death row days, living through, you know, the... So do you meet Suge Knight? Yeah, I knew Suge. He's, uh, he's not to be trifled with, as far as I, yeah, I mean... Yeah, you know, it was, you know, I think the sad thing is, you know, you look at death row records and you look at Dr. Dre, Tupac, you look at Snoop Dogg, all of the acts that this company built. I think at one point it was like three to four hundred million dollars in enterprise value at death at death row records. And what they were able to do culturally from a music standpoint, it was incredible. It's hard. Anybody who's building a startup knows how tough it is yeah. to, to to get traction. These guys built, you know, a, a, an incredible, incredible business. And to fast forward to see where Suge is now, the dark side one in his life is really sad. The upside is, you know, Dr. Dre let the light side win in his life. So, you know, Dre had gone on and signed Eminem and 50 Cent and Beats by Dre headphones and, you know, all of these things where, you know, at least something great had come out of it. But, you know, it's just a shame that, you know, the streets got in the yeah. way of what that could have been. So you're at Bad Boy. So how do you end up becoming Lady Gaga's manager? Uh, a lot of years. <laughs> I, I became Eve's manager first. After I left Bad Boy, I was doing um, some stuff with Will Smith and those guys. Ended up moving back to Philly. And Eve asked if I would manage her. She had just gotten signed to Dr. Dre's record label. Got you. I was helping her find managers and she just asked me to do it, and I ended up taking the role. And that was my first real client. It was my first sort of responsibility for somebody's careers, right. you know, within my hands. But luckily, I had this sort of blueprint of what James Lassiter and Will were able to build, and just kind of looked at that playbook of okay, television should be in our roadmap. 
film should be in our roadmap. You know, how can we make her bigger than just a rapper? But also, how can we take the rap career and have that crossover into pop? Right. You know, so so I already had some sort of knowledge around it. It just was a matter of, you know, having somebody to trust me to be able to execute on it. So is there a roadmap? Because it does feel like a lot of it is romanticized when you hear like somebody's rag rags to fame story. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it is definitely strategy. When it happens and it sustains, then it didn't just happen. Yeah. You know, we see it happen a lot. But it's not always sustainable. You know, we some, sometimes, you know, we see it happen and then it falls off a cliff. That's why we see a lot of one hit wonders. We hear about the sophomore slumps. We hear about all of these things. But when it happened and it sustains, there's a lot of strategy in place. So it's talent is the most important component of it, because if the person doesn't have talent and a work ethic, you know, that it just doesn't happen. Yeah. But talent isn't the end-all, be-all, because we see a lot of talented people with failed careers. So if you have talent and you can marry that to a great strategy with a great team, then that's when you see things uh, sustained. In that strategy, are there two, one or two or three things that you just have to have that, did, that work? You know, I, I wouldn't say it's just one, one or two things, because it's so client-specific. Yeah market specific it's you know it's all of these variables that kind of sit in between you know sometimes you got to call it audible because you know like uh what's the the famous quote mike tyson every everybody has a, a plan coming into the ring the until face. you get punched into, in the face <laughs> and uh and in our business you get punched in the face a lot so you gotta be able to call audibles but i think the work ethic is an ability to adapt are like the biggest things because Seeing what happened in streaming from this generation of artists who were used to putting out CDs to now they have to become artists who know about streaming, a lot of people couldn't adapt. So a lot of superstars who might have been big 10 years ago, they show up to Spotify and you don't have an audience because my daughter's 15 years old. And so if you put out a record 10 years ago, she was five. So Ariana Grande and Halsey, those are her pop stars, not anybody prior to that. So you got to rebuild an audience and have the ability to adapt. So do you have the humility to do it? Do you have the patience to do it? So it's a totally different strategy. Well, I was was doing some reading and like Tom York at uh, Radiohead famously said streaming is like, I think he called it the last desperate fart of a dying corpse. And obviously he's taken a different approach, kind of doing it completely on his own. But whether it's through music, because of the music or otherwise, obviously Radiohead is not nearly as relevant today as it was, you know, in their heyday where they were kind of the band for a lot of people. And I don't know how much of that is down to just basically sitting out. Yeah, it depends on what you care about, right? You know, in the beginning of the interview, you mentioned Taylor Swift. I had my opinions on it going into Spotify, just, you know, somebody in the industry who sort of watches the entire industry from a a macro level. After I sat down with Taylor, I understood her viewpoint a lot better and I respected it. So if you're Taylor Swift and you're one one of the last artists in the world that can make $10 per CD, I'm taking that bet all day long. Yeah. You still have the ability to sell out multiple stadiums. I'm taking that bet all day long. From an economic standpoint, she's going to make a lot more money by selling physical CDs. From an audience standpoint, she's not growing her audience, you know, that much more if she puts it on a streaming service. Right, because she's already so huge. Yeah, she's, 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 that, she's that big. And she's still young enough She's not holding out for any extended period of time from streaming. That was, her, you know, that was her thing that she's still going to capture that young, that younger audience or that audience that she doesn't have on streaming. And she had a really well thought out strategy mm. on why she was doing what she was doing. And I respected it with my Spotify hat on. That's not the answer that I wanted to hear. But I walked out of that room saying this girl is fucking smart. Six months after that conversation, she just came off of the biggest tour in U.S. history. So going back to, you know, sort of Radiohead, 
I don't really have an opposing viewpoint to Tom York's statement as much as it is, what's his motivation? I've talked to some acts who are, you know, legacy acts, where I explain to them, if you want to reach a younger audience and you want your music to go beyond your life cycle, you need to be on streaming. Right. Because no one's buying CDs. No one, um, some people are buying records, but not many. Yeah, and it's not going to be a, a big place to, you know, a lot of places that are going to sell CDs any, anymore. And then for young people, if, you, if you're looking at any sort of audience under the age of 18 and you're not on streaming services, it's going to be tough for yeah. to have longevity. As we grow older, a lot of the popular music from you know previous decades are getting phased out or whatever. Yeah. And um, so I think streaming's a way to sort of preserve it and being able to pass it on to, to future generations. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And so just going back to Gaga, can you talk about how did you find her? Because I also, from my reading, I think for you, that was a pretty that was a particularly difficult time, wasn't it? Yeah, um, I met Gaga through a friend of mine, Vincent Herbert. Vince discovered her through a buddy, a buddy of his who was producing music for her. And Vince flew her out to L.A. and he called me up and said, Carter, I got this girl you absolutely have to meet. And um, he came through the next day and brought her into my office. And she played so, like just song after song. And just to hear how great of a songwriter she was, and then to see this sort of this look that she had that I've never seen before, you know, like she landed from another planet, I knew she was special. It was such a clarity of vision of what she wanted to accomplish. You know, she basically said she wanted to be the biggest star in the world. She was, you know, she had just gotten dropped from Def Jam. And sort of having that pain in the pit of her stomach was one of the key drivers right. to I'm just going to do whatever it takes and, you know, and put in the hours to make it make it work. You were in a similar kind of like, I got to make this work now. Right. Yeah, I was I was broke. <laughs> and, um, at that point, Eve had left had left our company. You know, I just started this new company, invested heavily into the new company. And after about eight years, Eve decided to go to another manager, which I wasn't prepared for it at all at that particular time. It just caught me completely off guard. It was like the perfect storm of what could go wrong went yeah. wrong at that time and where the financial markets was falling apart. So I couldn't even oh, get this money was from 2000, the bank. 2007. Right. So this was like yeah, yeah. everything that could have gone wrong had gone wrong. 
my family ended up, you know, as close to bankruptcy as you could possibly get. I had to let all my employees go, which was a tough conversation to have. I had to move out of my office. Will Smith and James Lasseter, you know, basically let me move into their, you know, they had an empty office next to theirs. And they said, look, you know, just come crash here if you want to crash. And I think that was sort of just to get me out of my funk a little bit. Yeah. But when Vince brought her in, I had no idea that that would change the course of my life and her life. Yeah. And, that, and that's exactly what happened. It, it was life, life changing. And so that kind of brings me to the kind of the technology aspect, because obviously 2008, uh, we talked earlier about how it was important to get her on radio, top 40 stations, et cetera. But also she, she used social media in a way that, well, I imagine you had never had experience with before because it kind of didn't exist. Yeah, it was it, social media. I, I don't even think the name, the term was social yeah. media back then. It just was because it was all so new. Yeah. You know, I think being able to have... Like, you know, YouTube was incredibly helpful because, you know, at that time, I think it was like a Lonely Planet video or something that just made YouTube like this sort of viral thing. And we started using it to post these sort of video clips, almost like short films yeah. with music in the background of Lady Gaga and her friends doing these sort of art projects. And you could see the sort of audience building on it. And then being able to use Twitter to start speaking to an audience as well. Those are things we weren't able to do before, you know, because you sort of had gatekeepers you yeah. know, in, a, in a way of you know, these communications. I think technology companies started paying attention to what we were doing. We got really interested because it was working for us, you know, and as I started meeting founders, as I started meeting, you know, uh, engineers, I started learning a lot about tech but also teaching founders about sort of audience building, community, go-to-market strategy, building their relationships right. in, in, in L.A. And it was just sort of mutual things. So I, I would go to San Francisco two to three times a week, and I started bringing founders down to L.A. And, and, you know, and built the relationships from there. Yeah, so was there a moment where you're like, there's something interesting here, I should, and when you kind of became an investor in tech? The most interesting th day for me, it was my first day in Palo Alto, and I met Joe Lonsdale from, from Palantir. Joe was the most interesting guy because seeing this young guy who built this incredibly sophisticated, high-growth company who was super humble, like I, I, just, I just was enamored with the way he thought about problem solving or whatever. And Joe, I basically started picking his brain about how do I solve some of the problems in the music industry. And we, we created this company at that time called Backplane that was really looking at community and looking at how do you build community through data instead around of... Around artists. Around interest. So, right. so where... It just so happened that, you know, Gaga was a co-founder and the interest that we started off with was the Little Monsters, her community around, you know, Gaga. But we brought on Coca-Cola, for instance, because you, you got a whole global community of Coca-Cola fans, which yeah. I had no idea about. So to all of these communities and where we were ahead of our time and, you know, one of the things we saw early on was that what happens okay we, we're trying to get away from the music industry gatekeepers but wouldn't twitter and facebook and those guys be gatekeepers if they decided not to let us speak to our fans directly shouldn't we have that direct relationship and then of course fast forward you know they, they change the algorithm and they, they start charging you to basically speak to your community so the whole thing around it was how can you basically own the community versus right. the platforms owning the community. And that, that's still an interesting thing. Yeah, so why didn't that work? It was a lot of issues there. One, I don't think we, I don't think we had the right team in place to be able to tackle the problem at that, at that particular time, where I do think we had a group of really great engineers that were working on certain things of it. I don't think the vision 
was fully realized, you know, was, uh, uh, yeah. in terms of building that true north. And then also both Gaga and I and Joe Lonsdale, all of us had day jobs as well. So it's like being able to put the full focus into it. Because it does feel like now might, I mean, obviously you can't go back in time, but now 2019 feels like it would even almost be a better time. I think Because so you have all this backlash against kind of what do you call it? Big social media, big, uh, big B, big S, big M. I, th- I think so, too. I think, you know, I think a lot of brands, I think a lot of artists, I think a lot of people are really figuring out. People seem to be looking for their tribe now rather than just, I'm going to go on Facebook with my 5,000 friends, who only 10 of which are actual friends. I'm getting less out of that. Let me go find something that's actually interesting and give something to me. Yeah, and I, and I think commu- community is, you know, more important now than, than, it's, than it's ever been. You know, uh, finding common interests with people is more important now than it's than it's ever been. So if, you know, you're a, a right wing and I'm left wing, but we both love Harley Davidson's, you know, do we have that sort of common interest that, that, that can bring us together? So I think, you know, just, you know, these communities around common interests, I think, are much more needed today. Yeah. So I just have a few more questions. I know we're kind of running short on time. Uber. Uh-huh. Am I correct in saying that you invested when it was at the very first round when it was worth three million dollars? No, it was it wasn't the angel <laughs> round. I wish it was the angel <laughs> round, but uh, you know we got in very very early. We got in Uber C- Series B. Okay. Yeah. So you know at that point it's still only in San Francisco as a black car company at that particular time. But yes, I got introduced to Travis through a mutual friend, Shervin Pishavar, who was at Menlo, and so when Shervin went to Menlo and became an investor, he and I started sharing deals together. It was like three companies that we sort of invested in right. within the same time frame. Uber was definitely just very, very interesting company. And, you know, at that particular time, we, you know, had this idea that it was really around the taxi industry. And, you know, that was sort of the, what the market looked like. Yeah. And just sort of see it go from there to you know fast forward 2019 and we're you know we're on scooters right now and like you know and we're and this global company and you think about the the mobility sector yeah it's uh it's just amazing to see you know seven years ago where this company was eight years ago where this company was and where it is today and the other thing that which i think you're really an interesting intersection of which seems to be happening more is technology and entertainment technology and culture because it does feel like for a long time, and maybe this is kind of why they brought you on to Spotify, there's, they seem to be two very separate worlds. Technology slash Silicon Valley and entertainment, they seem to be kind of parallel. But they do seem to be kind of meshing in a way like never before. My, 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 my dream would, see, be, uh, would be to see it really mesh together, right? I think Netflix has figured it out better than anybody at, at this point. One of the things they understand very well is we have a very healthy engineering culture in Palo Alto, and we have a very healthy entertainment culture in in L.A., and the two don't necessarily have to merge together and be kumbaya. There's a respect level there, but they could also be two separate companies when you when you think about what the core of both of those divisions do. They couldn't be any more different than each other. And I think creatives in our business on the music are just wired differently from, you know, sort of engineers, just the way we problem solve gut versus data, you know, all of these, you know, sort of things. And Spotify, what was great is we built a bridge between those two worlds where I was able to go in and get a very healthy education on the importance of data and I think being able to bring in a whole, you know, team of 175 people of, you know, creatives who taught the company about feel, you know, so when you can have feel and data, you know, live within the same building and you have debates about it and you have decisions that are that are made with those two recipes in, 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 the, in the room is, is great, you know, because I do think. 
in the music business, we don't value data enough. A lot of people seem to But in tech, of, I don't think they value feel. True, yeah. exactly. And I think what's one thing that people are kind of, especially with Netflix and how powerful it's become and even Spotify to a slightly lesser degree is this idea of data-led art. Mm-hmm. of, okay, well, let's look at the data and then create something that is feeding a clear desire or whatever. I think it's bullshit, right? <laughs> so the way I look at it, right, you know, we got into a big, I, I had a, a debate with somebody at Spotify and we're kind of going back and forth. And I said, what data told Sony to sign fucking Beyonce? It's no, you know, like, it's no data. It's like certain things you feel. Like data, the hair that stood up on my arm Seeing Lady Gaga was my data. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's like that feeling I got, the butterflies, seeing Eve on stage, that's data. Like, there's no information that you can calculate that's going to tell you certain things, right? So I think from a pure create art creation perspective, until I can find software that, that's going to write Imagine from John Lennon, <laughs> or Ribbon in the Sky from Stevie Wonder, it's going to be hard for me to believe that we're going to find algorithms to write those records. Right. But on the flip side, from a decision-making standpoint, once the art is made, how do we operate as a business from the music industry? We are so data dumb. That's the part we shouldn't be using gut on. I should know how many stadium shows I'm going to sell out before my tickets go on sale based off of data. I should know how many t-shirts to take to Cleveland with me before, before, I, uh, you know, before we stack inventory. Like, you know, so it's all of these things that I don't think we make great decisions on and that cost us billions and billions of dollars. So you're not worried then about this idea that in this kind of called the age of data, that data is kind of, in terms of the pendulum swing of power, that it's, there's such a primacy and importance placed on data that will be kind of be creating art, basically composing to the algorithm, to feed the data, in other words. Be like, well, this is what people like. This, you know, it's like Netflix. You know, they have a whole series just called Dogs. And I'm sure it's super popular, but it's like, do we really... I mean, I guess it's there for somebody, but it does feel like they more than anybody else. And again, Spotify with its Discover Weekly or recommendations but those are business decisions versus creative decisions right so where but the money starts with the data no in terms of to fund that i think the consumer sits in the seat so if consumers want to watch shows about dogs (laughs) they're going to enjoy watching the shows about dogs then i don't think there's anything wrong with finding a passion a producer that's passionate about dogs, that's going to make a show about dogs, right? I think it, so it works for the, whole, the, for the whole cycle, right? I'm a proponent of that. Like, I think that's great because I think it, it makes it a better experience for the consumer at the end if I don't have to keep scrolling through Netflix for 20 minutes to try to find something to, to watch. Yeah. You know, so I think that's, that, that's better. And even for music... Discover Weekly and it works fantastic for me. Like I, I love jazz music and I discover so much new jazz that I would have never looked for based off of what I'm yeah. fed on Discover on Discover Weekly. So I think that part's good. But if they think that software is gonna start writing John Coltrane's, you know, <laughs> right. album, that's the part where I feel like I'm not a proponent of that. So just looking forward, so say 10 years ago, uh, CDs were still king, or maybe 15 years ago. Then looking at the music industry today, I think in the last two, two years, revenues have started to go up after a 15-year decline once for, since Napster, and it just kind of went down, down, down. Yep. Now it's turned around. If we're looking forward, Crystal Ball, five years, is there anything, any dramatic change that you see in terms of music and or art and how it's delivered or kind of put together or in terms of what you're seeing in terms of the trends? I think music is going to conti- is going to continue to grow, you know, just kind of based off of hardware devices that we're seeing and sort of what's happening globally right now, just getting more and more people into the ecosystem. So I think this volume of listening and people. Yes. Into music. Exactly. Right? Like I, I think, I think it'll grow for sure. I think in terms of trends, 
I'm excited to see what happens in the augmented reality space of experiences, you know, so because the live space has been the same, you know, since the Romans, essentially, or whatever, if you want to go back even further. So, you know, you put, you know, people into uh, a, a, a round arena and, yeah. you know, and let, and let them perform, you know. So these layered on experiences are going to be interested and interesting. And I'm starting to see some technology that's that could be mind blowing for music if they if they get it right. Just, kind of like a virtual concert kind of thing. It's not even just virtual. It's more augmented where, you know, where the experience, you know, is layers onto the experience. So and and it's things that you know apps and technology could have never been done could right. never been done before. And are you talking about like me sitting here at my or on my couch and having that experience, or being somewhere and then have it being augmented? You can do both, right? right? You know, I think the the sort of preference and you know where I'm starting to see a few companies go is to the space of where you go to the experience, and that way it's like you know the room's a bit more controlled than what you can do. But I think for concerts and things along those lines, yeah. I think it kind of takes it to another level. The other part is just you know the, using predictive analytics around around music listening. You know, so when people don't know they even want to listen to music at that particular time, you know, the music is sort of prompted. So whether it's you know you are going on a date and being able to use software to know what type of music you love and what type of music your date loves and to be able to play that perfect song at the perfect, at the perfect time. Right. So instead of making your mixtape, the mixtape is made for you. It's made, it's made for you. <laughs> and it's prompted at that, at that, at that particular like, time. Go Martin, Ga- Marvin Gaye. She may example. know. <laughs> By the way, the, soft, the software may know her last boyfriend broke up with her to that Marvin Gaye song. So they're not going to play that yeah. Marvin Gaye song. <laughs> <laughs> So being able to use, uh, you know, so I think this sort of predictive analytics with technology is going to be interesting. Too. Right. Um, your worst day of work. My worst day of work. Wow. Ever? Yeah. I think my worst, my worst day of work was when E fired me. That was my worst day at work. Yeah, but just because, she, you know, she and I were like brother and sister. And so I think this sort of breakup moment of being at the office, like, you know, when, when that happened, that had to be the, that had to be the worst. Cause it was out of the blue. It was out of the blue. And then she hired a friend of mine as the new manager. So it's almost like, okay, your wife's not only going to divorce you, but she's marrying your best friend. Right. You know, so you get like a double blow. So it was like, that might have been the worst. That was the worst day at work. Because also but, you, you, you basically helped her from the ground up, right? I mean, you were there from kind of day one. Yeah, I was there, I was there day one and I'd known her since she was, you know, 16 years old. And, you know, so she and I had a long history together. But, you know, you fast, you fast forward and um, I came home maybe about four months ago and my wife had DVR Eve's talk show. I think it's called the the talk that she's one of the uh, panelists on the talk show. She's like, "Oh, I want to show you something. You got to watch this." So I, I yeah. get in bed and I kind of turn it on. And around the panel, each of the panelists, they were taught. The question for the panel was, if it was one person you had to name, who had the most influence on your life? When it got to Eve, she said, "It was my manager, Troy Carter." And she started talking about our relationship and, and me pushing her to, to act when she didn't want to act and kind of, you know, really me being this pain in the ass, which probably which got me fired in the first place, too. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it, but for me, it just was, you know, it was one of those validating moments to just show that, you know what, I did the right thing. And she in retrospect appreciate it you know what you know what what i did to this very day she's still one of those people who i love with all of my heart and every time i see her you know we just yeah. it's like we give each other the bit the biggest hugs to that's this great day. yeah i know i keep saying last question but i forgot to ask about prince uh-huh so you feel free to kick me out but i'd love to hear just like how you got involved what your role is and what's happening with prince's estate yeah, uh, Jason Boyarski, who's a friend of mine, he's an attorney for the state. 
called me up on like a, a, a Thursday, like, you know, would you be interested in overseeing the, becoming the advisor, the entertainment advisor for the Prince Estate? Where do I walk to right yeah. now? I'll walk to Minneapolis. And, and I, went, I ended up working that weekend on a presentation to present to the, the bank that was overseeing it at the time. Because it was a bit of a mess. He died, obviously, unexpectedly, and there was no will, et cetera. Yeah, and by the time I got involved, you know, it was some previous people who had worked on the estate, and it was some litigation there, and it was, you know, it was one of those things where I was a huge Prince fan, but at the same time, I'm like, is this going to be worth actually getting involved in? And then, you know, I talked to one of my mentors about it and he's like, are you an idiot? You want to stay as far away from this as you possibly can with this big of a mess. But, you know, I started listening to some of the music that we ended up finding, looking at some of the video and going through the archives. So there is a quote unquote a vault. Not only is the vault, when I say it just over exceeded my expectations by far, it's pretty amazing, you know, what we've come across. So what's happening with it? Actually, I'm leaving this meeting now to listen to some new music. <laughs> some new Prince music. <laughs> yeah, some new Prince music. And um, first release that came out was Purple Rain Deluxe. And Prince was working on that before he passed away. He wanted to remaster Purple Rain and a couple of other projects. And so that one was one of the things he was working on. Then it was a couple other things that he wanted to work on. We found uh, this Piano and a Microphone Volume 1 album, which was a cassette tape that we had come across of him playing a piano in like 1982, 83-ish. But it was like the demo of him actually writing Purple Rain before Purple Rain was written. So it's like a work tape. Oh, wow. And so we ended up releasing that, which got critical reviews. We released you know, his original version of Nothing Compares to You. We have a Netflix documentary coming out soon. We have an Apple Music documentary film that's coming out soon. New um, albums? Prince has enough material that will outlive all of us in terms of how much material can be released over the years. So it's just... So you're you know, talking about hours and hours of songs. Yeah, he, you know, he recorded... He was prolific. So he recorded on a regular basis you know, since you know, the, the late 70s. You know, so it's just really figuring out, you know, once the material and the estate is turned over to his heirs, you know, how they want to move, move it forward. But, you know, between now and then, you know, we have some great work that'll come out. And then from there, it'll be up to them, you know, how often they want to release music and when they want to put it out to the wow. fans. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Troy for not only sitting down, but having me over to his house, which was fantastic i hope you guys enjoyed the interview just a really fascinating story uh not least i didn't think radio was that important anymore but apparently it is and on that note talking about things retro um still being important and kind of going back in the day i thought i would give you just a little taste of too too many which of course was carter's first rap group so here they are to play us out, too, too many. Where's the party at? That's obviously on Danny in the Valley. And we will see you next week. Oh, yeah. Grab my backpack, I'm off on the mission. I gotta find the gym because it feels like I'm missing. Out on a party, I gotta find some party. So I wanna know, well, do you wanna go? Do you wanna go? I wanna go, yes, I wanna go. Do you wanna go? I wanna go, yes, I wanna go. Do you wanna go? I wanna go, yes, I wanna go. Do you really wanna go? Well, come on. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.